Hello and welcome to The Alchemical Mind. Before we dive into part two of The Secret Book of John and dive really deep into cosmic uh, ideas and Gnostic cosmology, I wanted to break this series up with a little speech, actually a couple speeches, from audience favorite and one of my favorites, of course, Terence McKenna. And of course, Terence McKenna is very deeply influenced by his very, very heavy use of psychedelics. And because I talk about psychedelics a lot on this podcast as well, I think it's uh, kind of fitting to throw him into the conversation. Because not only is he very familiar with psychedelics and that aspect of the mystical experience, but he's also very deeply entrenched and influenced by Gnostic ideology. And I think it's important to remember when we look at figures like McKenna that they're not just simply people that just do a bunch of drugs and say crazy things. I think that's important to uh, think about when we look at mystical experience because that is kind of the stigma. We often have the stigma that people that just do heavy psychedelics are maybe a little crazy, a little off the beaten path, and that might be true, but there's a reason for that. There's a reason for it because psychedelics provide you with a different point of view as to how the world works. Psychedelics are kind of a a way to focus your consciousness and and bring it up kind of to a higher level where you can see things that most people can't see. And so they're they're important. They're they're deeply entrenched in culture, in society, in religion, in philosophy, and we've gotten away from that. We've really gotten away from the importance of these substances. And you know, McKenna had some interesting ideas like uh, you know the stone ape theory and all this stuff. And there's going to be a little bit of that here in this episode, in the second part of his speech. And he'll also be talking a little bit about the sacred mushroom. But I want to kick off with a little bit that he did on Gnostic cosmology, because I think that'll be a good entryway into the secret uh, book of John part two, in which we dive into the stuff and learn about the Gnostic creation myth, because McKenna puts it in a very like down-to-earth, simple way to understand and when we do this part of the text, we're going to dive really deep into it. So we're going to get a lot of insights into it. And we'll, we'll complement that with the next episode in the series after the Secret Book of John Part 2. And that'll be the Tripartite Tractate, which is a, a three-part kind of retelling of this Gnostic cosmology. But it's important to understand how this whole thing begins and what the cosmology is because it sets up the basis for the belief system of the Gnostics, and in many respects, the belief system that influenced a lot of Christian cosmology as well. Even though some of the more mystical, esoteric aspects of Christianity have kind of gone by the wayside, they still do exist and persist throughout uh, you know, the last 2,000 years of Christian history. And, and in order to set that up and talk about some of the other Christian mystics like Pseudonionesis the Arapagite, which you guys know I love, we kind of have to start somewhere. And in order to understand it, this is where we need to start. So without further ado, here's a little uh, about 15-minute speech from Terence McKenna on Gnostic cosmology and how the world was created. And the important thing to remember when you listen to this little bit of the episode is the dichotomy, the duality of good and evil. And, and this idea of a, an evil god creating the universe that we see and how that god is not simply just a, an all-powerful god. 
We talked a little bit about this in the first part of Secret Book of John. We talked about this a little bit when we talked about the Gospel of Thomas as well. Uh, that idea is central to the Gnostic idea, and we have to remember this because it's also been a huge part of Christianity. So without further ado, here's Terrence McKenna. The period that is so rich in heresy and has been a great inspiration for me is the Hellenistic syncretism that uh, follows upon the classical period in Greece and the rise of Roman uh, power and uh, at the same time ferment in the Jewish end of the Mediterranean to create and all kinds of things were happening actually there were gymnosophists coming from India teaching yoga in the second century BC in Rome and there were you know Egyptian followers of uh, Thoth and Isis and there were Docetians and Montanists and uh, uh, followers of Simon the Magician and these were there, a vast spectrum of cults ranging from Orthodox Jewish cults such as the Nabataeans and uh, the Zealots and presumably the Mandaeans that I mentioned earlier and then there were uh, Jewish mysticism infected with Platonic ideas uh, Philo-Judeus, Apollodorus, Musaeus, all these minor philosophers were teaching. There were Pythagoreans, there were atomists, uh, and the most interesting of these were proto-Christian, neo-Christian, pseudo-Christian, crypto-Christian sects that were competing with what eventually became Christianity. Some of you may know of this sect uh, that live that did some of the dead scre uh, dead sea scrolls the nabataeans who lived outside of jerusalem and down in the dead sea these were the people that james pike was investigating when he died in the negev uh, a few years ago well actually over many years there has been was a very important manuscript find in 1948 at a place called uh a Greek Orthodox monastery called Chenoboskion in Upper Egypt that was on a much older site called Nag Hammadi. And out of the ground at Nag Hammadi came 43 codices that were, uh, by groups of scholars, coordinated worldwide, uh, translated through the 50s and 60s and 70s. This is now, now available as the Nag Hammadi Library. And it's very, very interesting stuff because this stuff went into the ground A.D. 270. So the later bishops, the patristic recensionists, uh, the diddlers and fiddlers and all of that were kept away from it. Nobody had seen this stuff since A.D. 280. So uh, it was very, very interesting. Of the, of the 53 texts, 41 were unknown in any other version. Of those that were known, there, were, there was some of the late Plato there were goss there was portions of Matthew, but uh, what was interesting were these previously unknown texts, some of which were very close to gospel 
type material, um, a gospel according to Philip, the second known version of the gospel of Philip, a gospel according to Thomas, the doubter, my favorite guy. But more interesting is the less pseudo-Christian material, this exegetical and mystical material that just takes off, that is proto-hermetic. Some of it shows traces of Indian philosophies, transmigration of souls, yogic practices. Uh, some of it reads almost like Maria Sabina's mushroom chants. Uh, there's one text called... Uh, the voice of the thunder that has a meter and a rhythm that is precisely Maria Sabina. So Gnosticism is the general banner under which all of this stuff can be placed. Gnostics believe the central tenet of Gnosticism, and it's hard to put this across because modern Gnostics are such cheerful people, but they, they've forgotten their their real roots. The the central perception of Gnosticism, no matter how you slice it, is that we don't belong here, that we are strangers, that something terrible happened, and that accounts for why we're here, that we were destined for a much better deal, and something went terribly, terribly wrong. It takes different forms. As some Gnostic mythologies are fairly straightforward. Some are fairly Baroque. The one that I enjoy is one of the more Baroque ones. The second century Gnostic uh, bishop Valentinius had this notion that there were 36 archons. They are demons of progressively lessening power that interpose themselves between man and uh, a true vision of God. And the last of the archons, the 36th archon, was Sophia, uh, and the only of the archons that was female. There's a tremendous sexual ambivalence in Gnosticism, which we can talk about, which is resolved in different ways. But anyway, the 36th archon is Sophia, she looked upward toward the higher God and saw him bring forth creation of which she was the final manifestation. And in her heart, an avarice grew, a wish to create in the same manner as the highest and hidden All-Father. And she brought forth, um, it's described as an abortion. She self fertilized herself. She did not understand the requisites of creation, and she turned inward into herself, and she brought forth a monstrosity. And this monstrosity is the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, Jehovah. And when she saw what she had done, that she had brought forth this monstrosity, she flashed through a whole bunch of emotions very quickly. Horror, guilt, rage, fear, agony, like that. And these emotions of the errant Sophia condensed as the material world over which Ildabuath was then made lord, 
So the entire material universe is seen as the condensed emotional debris of the horror of the 36th Archon upon witnessing her own creation, who is then made God over this universe. Well, even though this is this really bad scene, it still nevertheless has this extremely tenuous connection to the highest and hidden All-Father in the form of what is called the scintilla, the spark, the soul spark of divinity. So then the goal of Gnostics born into this unfortunate world is to gather the light together to save the light. The light is defiled by its presence in the world of material existence and the light must be gathered. Well, so then the central soteriological uh, concern, that means the central salvational concern of Gnosticism is how shall we gather the light? And their whole theology then is what is the light? How should we gather it? And once we have it, what do we do with it? And then there were various answers. I mentioned the sexual tension inside Gnosticism. It took two forms, both wild extremes. In one case, Gnostic hermeneutics reasoned along the following lines. Life is defiled. The light is defiled by the material universe. Therefore, we should withhold entry of the light into matter. Therefore, we must be celibate. We must have no children. And in some cases, this took the form of saying, and we sanction no form of sexual union which could lead to procreation. So they were kinky in that style. The other direction that they took was extreme celibacy just simply no sexual contact whatsoever. And then um, the third option, and these options had differing percentages of loyalty as Roman society underwent exterior transformations. The third Gnostic stance was man is divine. We are of the light and nothing in the universe of Ildabawath can pollute the light, for it is of a higher order, and therefore we can do anything we want. Yes, so, so you could be a Gnostic and line up for scourges and heavy dieting, or you could line up for total libertinism and eating and drinking anything you want and any kind. Of, so this was the spectrum, and this was, of course, very baffling to Christian morality. Uh, but Christianity has a, an incredible debt to Gnosticism. Uh, I mean, the Gospel of John and Revelations, uh, I mean, this whole bit, in the beginning was the Word, this notion of the going forth of the Word, this is thoroughly Gnostic, and the, the struggle between light and darkness, you know, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended not. This is the this is essentially the uh, the uh, Manichaean thing, which is a form of Gnosticism. Manichaeanism is a, a, a dualistic Persian religion that had great sway in Persia th uh, through this slightly later phase. Manai was its prophet. 
Manai was a Mandayan. His father was a priest in the Mandayan faith. Well, why talk about this so much? Well, I don't know. Um, permission for heresy is never a bad idea. And I think this is an important issue which is not resolved. I mean, we are all love bunnies of one sort or another. But what do you do about this thing? Are we of the earth? Is it our charge and our destiny? Or are we from another place? How can, you can't have it both ways. This is a pretty uh, clear division. What are we to be? Are we to integrate with nature? Or are we to transcend it through an act of conjuration out of the self, which is what culture is. I mean, apparently we have made the choice and all we're doing now is the philosophical dotting of the I's. Our commitment to technology is thoroughly Gnostic. Our commitment to... Um, <coughs> we believe that nature is something that withholds secrets from us, uh, that we must wrest the secrets of nature from it in order to somehow complete ourselves. And, uh, you know, modern Gnosticism plays all this down. Modern Gnosticism is existential and capitalizes more on the idea of abandonment. They're less interested in the program for returning to the higher and hidden All-Father and much more interested in talking about how we are abandoned by the All-Father and therefore what a drag it is and what can we do about it. So that people like Heidegger are thoroughly Gnostic in their thinking. I mean, anybody who is not... Because you see, what Gnosticism denied was the presence of God in the world. You need to understand that, that it was an article of faith of Gnostics that this is really a long way from God, that we are really off way, way out over, away from it. And Christianity preserves this dualism in the eternality of evil, in the idea that, you know, there isn't a final, a final fusion. They preserve the distinction down to the last knell of recorded time. So that's a thoroughgoing dualism. But my approach to this kind of thing is basically Jungian. I mean, that's where I got my interest in all of this material. See, I think that what we're always seeing is psyche, that we're always seeing uh, a mirroring of the intentionality of ourselves to concretize consciousness, to put a name on it. There's some really great commentary here that we often forget when we dive into these esoteric topics and that these things don't arise just on their own. There's always some external influence into the symbology that we present when we deal with mythology. You know, one of the things we often forget is that mythology isn't purely a story that we tell. It's a story that's veiled in symbols, in language, in secrecy in order to be able to speak about a subject. So mythology is oftentimes based on true events, but through the game of telephone that we talked about a little bit in this series called How to Find Out What is True. If you haven't listened to that, there's a two-episode series. Go listen to those. Uh, we, we often create these metaphors 
of how the world works. And in the case of the early Christians and the Gnostics, part of the cosmology that is created is kind of a a way of speaking about the socio-political economic environment that was present in the you know first century early first century and even you know a couple centuries before that there's uh there's a lot going on in terms of the roman rule of the provinces of the middle east that obviously plays a key role because you know we'll we'll dive into this a little bit more as we get deeper into the series but the roman structure of government and religion and politics and economics can't be denied as an influence for the belief system because if you you know once once rome quit being a republic and became kind of this kind of militaristic monarchy that we uh we end up knowing it as uh, sure there were still democratic and republican ideas enveloped within it uh, that came in some large part from greece but uh you know when when the Caesar first took over and the government was kind of halted in a way, that's kind of the, the point of the Caesar. You assign a, a militaristic leader in order to kind of make sure that things are working well within the empire. Uh, this is something that we still have today. The, the rule of the military is something that we still have today. The president can assign that to uh, the military. And oftentimes it leads to some interesting uh, side effects. For example, you know, you might have curfews in effect. You might have uh, oppressive rules as to what people can and cannot do, how they can organize themselves into groups, the things that they can or cannot say in public, things like that. We see this a lot nowadays, right? We're not quite there into this ruled by the military but it does seem like we're going into a much more conservative controlled environment and we have to take these things into account because the early christians of the gnostics were very much having this same kind of issue where they couldn't believe the things they wanted to believe and so they had to veil these things in language where they would not be persecuted and of course there was still persecution this is a historical fact everyone should know this if you've studied into early christian history you know the Christians were persecuted by the Romans because they the way that they perceived the world was kind of revolutionary and counter to the idea of this one Caesar ruling over the people. And of course, they didn't want that. Now, if we take this as a purely materialistic viewpoint, and that's kind of where many scholars in particular fall down on how we look at this type of history, you can easily determine these things to be actual stories, right? Like there was an actual Jesus, there was all these events are, are real, and they, they may or may not have happened. I don't know, I wasn't there. To me, it's irrelevant. I also talk about the fact that the person, the events, the history, all of that is not necessarily important to the message. The, me the, the importance is the message. It is the language that is encoded into some of these messages. And we forget this all the time. In particular, in Western ideology, I think with, with Eastern thought, it's a little simpler to look at these things and see them as mystical experiences. But because of the interaction between the people who believed these things and spoke about these things and how they had to keep them secret from the people in power, they become hidden. And because they're hidden, most people don't understand the true meaning of them. That is the whole point of the occult. 
of the esoteric, of the mystical. That not everyone has this knowledge. Only a select few can carry the knowledge. And so when it becomes mainstream, these ideas become mainstream and they get disseminated out into the public, they lose the central meaning of what's important. So in many respects, this whole idea of the Demiurge is partially related to the way that the early Christians and various Jewish sects and various Hermetic sects and other people that were in this area uh, kind of look at the world. They, in some respects, see the Demiurge as kind of a figure of the Caesar who wants no other god about him. Another thing that Terrence McKenna mentions here that I think is very important that we often forget is the importance of Eastern thought with regards to the development of Western thought. Because there were already, as he mentions, yogis and Buddhists and other kinds of uh, proselytizing traditions coming into the West, into the Mediterranean, into Greece, into Rome, into other cultures that were disseminating the ideas that had been developed for hundreds if not thousands of years prior to this into those systems. And those systems don't just take those ideas away because the ideas are important in their core central aspect of human existence. And so they take these ideas and bring them into themselves, into their own belief systems, and put a different spin on it. They're touching the elephant in a different way. So we cannot deny the the important influence of people all around the world and their connectedness. We forget this all the time. We assume that all these traditions arise you know, isolated from each other, and that's not true at all. We think because it's 2,000 years ago or plus that somehow the world was isolated, that we're not connected, there was no trade or economic value or, or you know, religious value and sharing ideas between one another, that's obviously preposterous. It's absurd. There's no way this would happen. It can't happen. Because this is how humanity works. The human condition has remained the same for all of human existence. It's always been the same thing. I had this realization many, many months ago when uh, – I can't remember what I was reading. I might have been reading The Secret Teachings of All Ages and uh, had an interesting meditation session, thought about what I was reading, and it, it dawned on me, not that it hadn't happened before, but I really finally understood how this is always the same problem. We always have the same problem. And for some reason, we can never get past it because for most people, they don't have the interest in realizing any of these things. They don't have the interest in learning new ideas and understanding what it is to be human. You just want to be safe and continue on with your existence like nothing ever happened. Like it's always the same thing. Like, you know, this whole idea of just waking up and going to work and coming home and eating and going to sleep and waking up and going to work, come to sleep. And, you know, you, you work so you can have a house, so you can have a safe place to sleep, so the next day you can wake up and go to work. And that's, that's absolutely preposterous. That's not the importance of life. That's not the meaning of life. You have so many people talking about, you know, you work hard, you, you will succeed. But work hard at what? You work hard at working hard? That's a ridiculous idea. What's the impetus, the, the motivation for doing things that way? Just so you can continue your existence? That's not living. That's surviving. Most of us don't have the ability to live because we don't want to. We just want to continue surviving. Anyways, I hope that little tidbit from Terrence McKenna was thought-provoking. This next bit is going to be more thought-provoking as well. Some of you may already be familiar with uh, this whole idea of Jesus as a mushroom. 
I love this coming from Terrence McKenna because we all know that's his thing. And, uh, you know, there's, there's an argument to be had about that being a possibility for sure. I don't think we should disregard the idea that it's all pure symbology. But even if you believe these characters to be actual people and all these events to be actual events, there's still a lesson to be learned from that. Because again, we often just want to believe that one viewpoint is true because we can't hold multiple ideas to be true. We don't have the, the knowledge and understanding to be able to hold opposing ideas and hold them as true. Just because one thing is true does not necessarily negate the other. Again, go and check out the two-part series, How to Find Out What's True. This is key to remembering this because it, it causes so many arguments for no reason. Those things are not important. So many arguments. Think about this. There's this whole thing, for example. Uh, there's there's a, a researcher that I really enjoy, and I won't mention his name because I don't want to call him out or anything. I really like his idea. And he's a big proponent of this out of Australia idea, which I love. I think in terms of history, some of that makes sense. But one of the issues that I have with the idea is that it automatically excludes the idea that we can't have come out of Africa. Now, why are these two things mutually exclusive? If humanity has been around for, you know, 800,000 years, we'll say, in some form, then why can't we have had multiple out of theories going on. Why couldn't we have evolved out of Australia, gone into Africa, and then from Africa evolved and gone out from Africa into Europe, for example? That's very possible. These things are not mutually exclusive. And part of the problem is because there's no real definition of what humanity is. And, and the more we are learning about our past, the more we are learning this to be true. You know, for a hundred 50 so odd years, I would say, we've known about Neanderthals. And we used to think Neanderthals were these stupid, ape-looking cave people that, you know, they had no culture, no language. They, you know, the typical caveman idea, that's what you have is uh, as, a, as a Neanderthal. And now through studying Neanderthal remains across Europe, across Asia and other parts, we come to realize that that's not true. They were very intelligent. They may have had language to some extent. They definitely had tools. They had funerary rituals. So now all of a sudden they're not so stupid. They're not so different from us. Their appearance is not so different from us. Like sure, maybe they had a, you know, a thicker jawline, maybe a, a thicker brow ridge, things like that. They were heavier set, uh, thicker bones, more muscular because they were adapted to a colder climate. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they would look very different from us. I mean, look at people in general. How different are people all around the world? You have normal-sized people, you have tiny, tiny people, you have, you know, like the pygmies, for example, you have very tall people, you have white people, you have black people, you have Asian people, you have Native Americans, you have, uh, you know, first peoples, you have all kinds of different people all around the world, different shapes and sizes. And how can we, how can we say that those people are all the same species? I mean, you can look at the DNA, but look at the DNA between, say, Homo sapiens, us, and Neanderthals. If we are, you know, 96% similar to chimpanzees, for example, the difference between humans and Neanderthals is tenths of a percent. It's a tiny, tiny amount. I mean, you share 50% of your DNA with a banana, 
doesn't mean that you and a banana are the same species. I mean, you can look at them and obviously tell that. But that's a lot of information encoded within us that basically tells us we're very, very similar. But if you look at them, that's not the case at all. And we find new species all the time, right? They discovered the Nisivans, I don't know, about 30 years ago, 40 years ago. We don't have a lot of information on them because there's just not a lot of remains. But there's a beautiful bracelet, for example, shown that's of Denisovan origin. And they had drilling technology you know, 80,000 years ago. Well, we didn't have that. We didn't have it until the Bronze Age. So think about these ideas. You know, you have the, the Hobbit people, the Homo floriensis in the southeast. Very, very tiny people. I was watching a, a fantastic documentary, uh, rewatching actually, called Skeletons in the Cupboard, about this idea of there being um, kind of a, a Caucasoid tribe of Maori uh, in New Zealand that kind of escaped out of the Middle East into Egypt, or maybe out of Egypt, I can't recall exactly, uh, moving out into the Americas and uh, kind of intermingling with the native population there. There's, of course, blonde, blue-eyed tribes in the Americas as well, and it seems to be some genetic semblance of these people in the Middle East, and then moving down into uh, New Zealand. And there's all kinds of mythology in New Zealand that I never hear talked about. I don't know if it's because people just don't know or because they just don't care because it's not a, a white or black thing. I'm not sure what the issue is there. But there's some interesting mythology there. There's interesting mythology in, in the North America. right? You have this idea of the Siteka, these giants that were destroyed by a, a Native American tribe that were giants, red-haired giants. Now, I'm not saying these are all... 100% true stories, but just like any other mythology, there's some basis to it. So keep an open mind when you listen to these ideas because there may be some importance to them. Now, without further ado, here's Terence McKenna talking about the sacred mushroom and this whole idea of the importance of psychedelics within early Christian society. And we're going to be talking a lot about that uh, very soon, probably in the next month or so. I'm going to have a, an author, actually, that's got a, a new book coming out that looks uh, looks really fantastic. Brian Murescu, I think is the name. And the book is called The Immortality Key. Uh, you can pre-order it now on Amazon. And I think he's a, a protege of Graham Hancock's. I had a chance to talk to him a little bit this morning. So we're going to be setting something up uh, for next month. And he'll be coming on and we'll talk about the importance of psychedelics within religion and, and mythology and mysticism throughout human history. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about the idea of why it was kind of thrown by the wayside. And you can assume my, my interpretation. It's this whole idea of, of dogma. And if you, you give people the keys to understand the nature of reality on their own, then why do you need the priesthood? I talk about this kind of idea all the time. Go check out my series from a couple months ago on uh, authority and how you are the ultimate authority and all this stuff. So uh, without further ado, I hope you enjoy this next segment with Terrence McKenna on the sacred mushroom. Uh, Allegro is a little different case. Do you all know the book, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross? He managed to hypothesize one of the most radical theories ever to come down the pike. I don't know how true it is, but his theory is that Jesus 
was a mushroom. <clears throat> and, you know, this would not probably have cut too much mustard, except that the guy was a Dead Sea Scroll scholar of world renown, uh, had a uh, scholar's grasp of Aramaic and uh, Akkadian, and was fully licensed to be one of the people who tell us what the primary documents of Christianity really mean. The problem was, when Allegro got a hold of them, he said, well, what they really mean is uh, that uh, a, a sacramental mushroom was go being grown in caves by Nabataeans down around Qumram, and they called it Jesus, in order to befuddle the Roman authorities and created the cheerful theory of the friendly carpenter who tells us to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And this was all a publicity stunt just to keep uh, the Roman authorities guessing. And he has textual, he claims he has textual support for this. The problem is you have to be an Aramaic philologist to follow the argument. I mean, the argument is unbelievably tortured. There is a lot of question. There is a peculiar opaqueness about the early history of Christianity. I mean, if we are to try and take it seriously and understand what happened there, then it must be that, it, first of all, if we believe Christ was a real person, then he must have been born in 6 B.C., because there was a conjunctio maxima of Jupiter and Saturn at that time, which is a good astrological event to hang the nativity on, which means then that the crucifixion would have occurred in 27. Well, why is it then that there are no mentions, no mention of Christ can be pushed back later than earlier than A.D. 69? What was going on between 27 and 69? The Gospels are not contemporaneous. And uh, the mention in 69 is not even a sure thing. It's in Suetonius. And he says, Jews have recently come to Rome agitating in the name of their leader, Crespus. And that's the reference. And, uh, you know, it's puzzling. Because take a figure as, as minor as Manai. Manai is the founder of Manichaeanism. He was born in Seleucia Tessaphon in the, in the 700s. Well, God, we have Manai's laundry bills. I mean, we know how much he paid in taxes, uh, the nickname he had for his dog. I mean, we have a lot of data on Manai. And so why a figure like Christ should be so peculiarly swathed in ambiguity if it was a real person with these people eager to chronicle it is a little hard to, to figure out. Didn't Manai have a religion going in his own lifetime? Kind of a big organization? Of course, Christ has had 12 yeah, guys. Yeah, I mean, Manai got right with it. I mean, he cultivated the court. He knew how to get his thing going, yeah. Um, if any of you are interested in these kinds of questions uh, and like your data in novel form, 
read the Transmigration of Timothy Archer by Philip K. Dick, which is a wonderful intellectual romp through all of these issues. It's essentially the fictional telling of the story of James Pike, who you may remember was the Episcopal Bishop of San Francisco and a great enthusiast for LSD. And he died in the Negev under very mysterious conditions. He parked his car and with a roadside map and a bottle of Coca-Cola in 115 degree heat started walking toward the the Dead Sea and dehydrated and died. And he was very close to John Allegro. You know, I'm not given to conspiracy theory, but you must have been following this whole hassle about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, a lot of people think it's because what is written there is incommensurate with the Christianity as it has existed for 1,700 years, and nobody knows what to do with this stuff. I mean, it's the equivalent of what do you do with the doctrine of the resurrection if somebody comes up with the mummy of Christ? Well, that's the kind of uh, situation that these Dead Sea Scrolls may place Christian hermeneutics in. John Allegro's book? No, John Allegro died recently. Sacred Mushroom. Oh, oh no, the tra- the book by Philip K. Dick is called The Transmigration of Timothy Archer. Yeah. Are you aware of Edmund Bordazeki's translations? Oh yes, he's another one. And his his really tweaking volume was called How the Great Pan Died. Right. And it was an expose of Jesus Barabbas versus this supposed Jesus. And so, it's, yeah. Yes. Well, the empire never died which is Philip K. Dick's motto, Uh, the Gnostic temperament is alive and well. In fact, there hasn't been a century as friendly to Gnosticism as the 20th since the 4th. So there you have it. The origin, good question. Uh, See, what happened? I mean, it's very interesting. Some of you who are interested in Heidegger may know a wonderful essay by... uh, Hans Jonas called the Gnostic temperament and what he's saying in there is that the the uh, attitude the psychology of the late Roman Empire let's say Rome from AD 150 to 400 or so was strikingly what we would call modern that, that a, a profound kind of exhaustion entered into the Roman psychology uh, in that late phase. They became, you know, the de- a good definition of decadence is it's sophistication without feeling, you know. And it's Camille Paglia's definition, by the way. Uh, and and the Roman Empire made the emperor a god. Well, imagine the cynicism that would pervade our society if you were under state order to light candles to George Bush. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're free to think of the man as a jackass, and it's not heresy. I mean, it may be bad taste, but, or, but it isn't heresy. And 
the Roman Empire expanded so rapidly and took in so many different kinds of people. I mean, there were, you know, the the Jews at the end of the Mediterranean, the Parthian Empire had been partially incorporated into the Roman Empire, uh, Egyptian mystery religions and uh, African folk religion, barbarian Celtic ideals were being imported in, and it just it became uh, uh, and the state religion, the religion of the emperor as God, was uh, it was fairly tolerant. Uh, you had to burn a candle to Caesar, but you could also burn a candle to Asarte and Thoth and Hermes and all these other people. What got the Christians in trouble was they wouldn't they wouldn't uh, give Caesar his due, even though it says to do this. You know, they kept claiming. Uh, that they were had some kind of political agenda. They kept expecting the return of a political figure. The Romans hated that because they didn't. They saw it as a political force. Well, in that situation, then after you see, you have to talk about early Christianity to get this stuff in context. Uh, people don't understand how shaped our knowledge of the origins of Christianity are with good reason because the religion wants you to believe that it's all very cut and dried there are real mysteries surrounding the birth of Christianity let me just run through it a little bit um, we all know or most of us know if you're not completely secular uh, the Christmas story and it begins and Caesar Augustus decreed that a census should be taken of all the world and each was going to his village to register. Do you all know this story? And so this explains why a pregnant Galilean woman, nine months pregnant, is 110 miles away from her home village in Jerusalem. We're told that they are obeying the dictates of Caesar Augustus to participate in this census of the empire and we're told that Pontius Pilate was procurator of Judea at this time. There was no census ordered by Caesar Augustus. No record exists of this anywhere. And if this had happened, it would have been an enormous bureaucratic task involving hundreds of clerks and the coordination of data from all parts of the empire. It would have been a shtick of some sort. And there's nothing, nothing, only this reference in the whole story of Christ. Well, you know, weird. Okay, so then you move on. The assumption is that Christ was born in 6 BC uh, under the conjunct Conjunctio Maximus of Jupiter and Saturn. That places, the, if you believe the Gospels, that he was killed at age 33. That means the crucifixion must have been in 27. Well, uh, there is no reference to Christ outside the Gospels until AD 71. What was happening between 27 and 71? It's damn near 50 years. And the whole thing falls silent. And then uh, what we get in 71 in, um, I think, the Roman, uh, it's, I guess it's in Suetonius, 
Suetonius, who was a Roman historian and contemporary, he says in a long rap about something else, he says, Jews have recently come to Rome and uh, caused public disturbances at the behest of their leader, Crispus. This is as close as we get. We don't even know if Crispus is Christ. We just accept that this must be so because Suetonius is telling us that Jews of a religious type have come to Rome and caused this agitation. Uh, the, it, some people have even wanted to that, uh, that Christianity was invented in the late 60s and that, the, that there never was a person named Christ that zealots who were preparing the uprising of 69 against the Roman Empire uh, created a mythical figure of a generation earlier and uh, uh, used this mythical figure as a symbol of their rebellion. It would be sort of as if we were to get into Joe Hill. You all know who Joe Hill is? The engine of socialism is a slipping back. Come on, all you workers, shovel sand on the track. Joe Hill was a martyr to, to social reform in this country. I believe he was shot by a firing squad in Utah in 1913. Well, we could reach back to Joe Hill and make him the founder of our movement and say what a great guy he was and collect stories about his life and, and it, we could use it to center ourselves and build a kind of social reform movement in the name of Joe Hill. Yeah. The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. He basically says something very much like this. Uh, I don't know about that. I just think it's very peculiar that we know so little about Christ when he had such a major role to play. I mean, take a guy like Manai. Manai, the founder of Manism, who was uh, born uh, in, uh, I think, around 320. Uh, God, we know everything about Manai. We have his tax returns. I kid you not, we have the guy's tax returns, and we know what he looked like, we know who his friends were, we know he had marital problems, a real person, you know, and yet his religion was stomped into oblivion. So there's something funny about all this, and of course Christ is no ordinary person. Christ is the third person of the Trinity, God incarnate. This is a claim, this was an idea that had been around for a few hundred years. You, you all have heard of Dionysius, who most people tend to connect to Bacchus, the, the drunken late Roman god of wine. But the early Dionysius is a much, much weirder figure. The early Dionysius uh, is uh, an androgyne always in the company of women, a god of ecstatic frenzy. And what the enemies of the Dionysian religion always claimed was, first of all, women were the, the major followers of Dionysius, and they would uh, intoxicate themselves in some way, and then 
holding hands, dance through the countryside and, uh, and uh, rend their clothing and just carry on outrageously. And what the enemies of the Dionysian religion claimed was that they became so frenzied that these women, who were called Manaeids, uh, ate their own children. This was the lie spread about the Dionysian religion. Well, the story of the birth of Dionysius is very interesting because his father was Zeus, the hidden higher all-father, analogous to God the Father in Christianity, but his mother was Simila. And in some versions, Simila is a mortal woman, the daughter of King Cadmus of Thebes, but in other versions, she's herself some kind of a goddess. Anyway, she was one of these many affairs that Zeus had. He was always impregnating women and, and bearing children. And uh, in the eighth month of her pregnancy, she was struck by lightning and killed. And she was very dear to Zeus. And when he came upon her dead, he immediately performed a caesarean operation and he cut open his thigh and he put the child into his own thigh and laced up the wound and the child was born out of the wound six weeks later. Now this may be grotesque and peculiar but notice that what we have here is something close to a virgin birth. It's, uh, it's born of the father is what we have. And Dionysius was then called the twice-born God because he was born once by Caesarean section from his mother and born again six weeks later from the thigh of the father. And it's thought that this Dionysian impulse in the hands of these uh, mystical Jews became then the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception and the whole notion of an immaculately conceived child. Christ is a type of Isis. I mean, it's heresy to say so, but comparative religionists have been saying this for centuries. Um, Dionysius was a religion of, of orgy and ecstasy, typical of this period in Greece. Another religious system that was sort of complementing the Hermetica and developing alongside it was um, Gnosticism. And, you know, I said a few minutes ago that the psychology of the late West Roman Empire was very modern. Gnosticism is a very, very modern impulse. It may not at first appear so because ancient Gnosticism is freighted with angels, demons, what we would call superstition. But if you strip away all that Baroque stuff, you come to a philosophy very similar to the philosophy that many of us have accepted really without thinking. We just call it modern attitudes. But the idea in Gnosticism is that you're on your own, you know? There, there ain't no free lunch. If, a God, if God did make the universe, he disappeared shortly afterwards and has no interest in you, your fate, your fears, 
your hope. Uh, we don't belong. Gnostics were profoundly phobic of the world. And uh, they uh, were either very ascetic cults or they were very uh, libertine-like cults springing from the same idea, which was that they did not belong in this universe. They were from a different place. And their whole concern was to escape. They are the ones who decided that the earth is an iron prison. Uh, they didn't like to have children because they felt that to have a child is to trap light in matter. The only, in many Gnostic sects, the only forms of sexual activity that they approved of were forms that were guaranteed to not lead to conception. So oral sex, anal sex, whatever. But never sex which could lead to conception because that would trap the light and that was an abomination. Needless to say, these sects died out in a hurry uh, because they were self-limiting. So that's going to wrap up this episode of The Atomic of Mind. I hope you enjoyed Harris McKenna's speech on Gnosticism. There's a lot to think about in terms of what he says and the way we look at early Christian and, of course, Gnostic history and just history in general. Never be just directly assigned to one philosophy, to one idea, because then you won't be able to find out what's true. You won't be able to achieve that gnosis. You'll just simply continue living your life in someone else's path. And you should make your own, as always. Anyways, if you want to get in touch with me, you can, of course, do so on Twitter, at MindAlchemical. You can email Martin at the Alchemical Mind, and, of course, you can leave a voicemail and uh, just go to anchor.fm slash the-alchemical-mind and there should be a link on there. Or check the show notes. There's always a link in the show notes as well. But I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back in a couple of days with The Secret Book of John Part 2 and we're going to go deep, deep, deep into Gnostic cosmology. So buckle up because it's going to get serious. As always, remember that you are it. You are it.